Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is David Emmett and with me is Neil Morrison. Um, all others being, all other Paddock Pass podcasters being unfortunately a little bit un- uh, unavailable. Incapacitated and the like. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Steve is in, um, uh, Steve English is in... Germany. Germany. For the Lousy Street for World Superbikes. Uh, uh, Tony Goldsmith back at home. Um, uh, the Island Man. Uh, Scott Jones, the Highlander, is getting ready to become the Thailander uh, because he's flying off to uh, Thailand next week. So uh, we are going to have a little bit of a discussion about... Uh, Mizano, the MotoGP round there, it was, uh, I, well, it was a, it were a fairly amazing and fascinating and interesting race, wouldn't you say? I would say so, absolutely. It was a pretty much a unique situation in the history of uh, of the top class, eight time, or the eighth different race winner in eight races. First time that that's ever happened, I think, in uh, a run of uh, a run of back-to-back and races. When was the last time that we had uh, eight winners in the top class anyway? 2000. 2000. Can yeah. you name them? Uh, yeah, I can, but... Uh, You're not going do, to. Do we really want to go into that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it was, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was interesting for that, and it was also fantastic just because we saw the sort of reemergence of Danny Pedrosa, uh, a guy that's had such a tough and difficult year, probably the worst year of his life, actually. Um, you know, before Mizano, I think it was the first time since two thousand and one that he hadn't stood in the podium in f- you know five races. Um, so Pedrosa really, um, you know was having a difficult time up until Brno, I guess you could say. And we definitely saw signs of improvement in Silverstone. And then we came to we came to Mizano and he was just he was just on it really the whole weekend. Um started on Friday. He was, you know, inside the top two or three more or less all day. Um lousy qualifying, but I would say you know, a race that a performance in that race that really um you could count among the best of his of his performances in any Grand Prix race I've seen, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was it, there was a lot to commend it, um, not just his riding, but especially his overtaking. Uh, the, the 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 passes he put on, you know, Lorenzo and um, on uh, Rossi were just phenomenal. Uh, especially the pass on Rossi it was just uh, no, sorry, the pass on Lorenzo that was the one. The pass on Lorenzo was absolutely clinical. It was ju- he just totally sliced past him. Um, didn't really give uh, give Lorenzo a chance, um, which is I mean it's also interesting. One of the things that Pedrosa has been um, uh, criticised for in the past has been his lack of passing or his unwillingness to pass. And it seems as if, especially since like last year, if you remember the pass he put on Rossi at Aragon last year was really aggressive, really really fast. Um, uh, again, these passes here, it, it really looks like we have a rejuvenated uh, uh, Danny Pedrosa. But um, uh, I think the, the the biggest factor has been the Michelin tyres and the way that he's just, you know, come back to uh, being able to use them again. Yeah, and I think you could look at... You could look at conditions throughout the weekend. Um, there were, in some ways, they were quite unique because it was such a hot race weekend. Track temperatures were very high. Michelin preempted this, having tested um, at Mizano at various stages through this year with with Ducati and with Aprilia as well. Um, they brought, you know, two new front tires, um, and you know they seemed to work very well for some people, but other 
others not so not so much um, Mark Marquez was one of those guys that just couldn't really get the tyre uh, to work to his liking um, so he wasn't able to use that and we know that Pedroza isn't perhaps as uh, demanding on the front he's not like a crazy late breaker like Crutchlow or like Marquez for example um, you know they have been complaining about overheating the front tyre pretty much all year and you don't really hear Pedroza um, issuing such complaints no I mean Pedrosa complains much more about um, being able you know a failing to get temperature into the tyre rather than the tyre overheating I mean that's both that's both front and rear uh, just basically he's very very smooth um, and he's very very light and he can't and also just because of his physical size he can't move around on the bike quite so much uh, and because he can't do that that stops him from actually getting leverage uh, on the bike, I mean, uh, uh, someone commented on my uh, on my website. Well, why doesn't Danny just, uh, you know, either put some weight on or, or or put extra weight on the bike? And that isn't really how it works. It's more about being able to transfer weight around the bike to be able to. Uh, sort of get heat into it, you know, forcing your weight over the front or or over the rear to generate traction, or over the fr- or, or you know further back to be able to brake harder uh, and heat the front up. Yeah, it was interesting reading Matt Oxley's column on Monday, you know, on, on the Motorsport uh, website. And one of the things that he said was um, he was recalling a time when Pedrosa crashed at the first turn at Le Mans, I think it was, or maybe it was it was the first chicane. And Matt asked Danny, you know, what had happened, and Pedrosa said that basically the front tire had just cooled down, you know, in the run from the final double right at Le Mans all yep. the way to the first chicane, you know. So that's kind of the that's kind of the issues that uh, that Pedrosa has in terms of keeping heat in the tire. You know, he just doesn't have that weight to put over the bike to leverage himself around on the bike and you know you'd have to say that that's a, that's a fairly big disadvantage yeah that, that is the one thing I spoke to Mike Leitner several years ago when he was still Pedrosa's crew chief and uh, the one thing that Leitner said was uh, what people don't realise uh, is that uh, you know okay so he has this, uh, this advantage that um uh, he has less weight to carry or well, he has less weight to accelerate, but he actually found it much more difficult to create traction uh, because he can't sort of use his weight to, to, to generate more grip with the rear tyre and actually uh, uh, to, or to generate more more grip with the rear tyre and also get his weight over the front to counter the wheelie. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of swings and, it's swings and rounds about, but it all came together at Mizano. Yeah, and it's it's one of the things you know we've seen Pedroza in the last couple of years struggling really at the start of the races, um, and that's usually just because he has such a difficult time a with the full tank and moving the bike around with you know less um, less leverage I guess you could say, and then also what we were just talking about there you know it takes that that extra bit of time to to heat up the tires. Yeah, this is that's actually that's a, a good point which I haven't thought about before, and now you've reminded me. Because two or three years ago, Pedrosa was like was an absolute rocket ship. He would just get launched out of corners um, or launched off the start line. Uh, it, you could almost you know, bet your house on Pedrosa being the first person into into turn one. Uh, and then maybe two or three years ago, that started getting worse and worse. And especially the past couple of years, Danny was just. He was he was just never getting into um, uh, the corner first. He was getting very poor starts. Um, I asked him a couple of times about it, and Pedrosa, being the secretive person that he is, always you know wouldn't answer, uh, wouldn't give me a straight answer, and always just said you know well that we've made some there have been some changes and we've made some changes and we're trying to fix it and uh, and that was basically it. But um, you have to wonder that perhaps. 
uh, it seems as if Honda have made some improvements with their electronics, um, which uh, is starting to help a little bit with the wheelie and starting to help a little bit with traction. Um, so maybe this is uh, the, the combination of all these things means that uh, Pedrosa is able to get a better start. And um, he came from eighth through to uh, well, fifth or sixth uh, uh, at the start, but certainly just right on the back of the front group, right from uh, right from the start, and that was important. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We saw that um, he said after the race, uh, free practice showed to him that I think free practice four in particular, you know, his pace on new tires wasn't that great, but no matter how many laps he put on them, um, it was okay. And it was, I guess it was quite crucial that he was able to choose the, the soft front tire. I think he was, it was just him and Piro that went for that option. Um, everyone else pretty much bar Marquez, I think in the Suzuki's were on the harder option tire. Uh, sorry, bar Marquez and Suzuki's were on the medium option tire. And Marquez was obviously on the harder. Um, so it just meant that, you know, Pedroza had, extra grip and he was able to make it last and his, his pace was ferocious and the way he cut through the field you've already mentioned that the, the, the moves he made on, on Marquez Lorenzo and Rossi were all very impressive um, and what really impressed me was once he got past Rossi you could see just how much Rossi was willing to risk and Rossi really for I think about two laps um, after he was passed I think there was maybe five six laps until the until the flag Rossi really put in a concerted effort and closed in around the final sector of the track, you know, place where the Yamaha is pretty good, turns really well in those final three rights and then the two lefts uh, that end the track. And basically, Rossi was just pushing so hard, he, was, he almost felt he was going beyond his limits and he made a mistake. And that mistake was because Pedroza was just keeping this absolutely electric pace in the low 33s. I think his penultimate lap was a, a 33-0. Um, and the official lap record that he that he posted in that race was at a 29.8 or 29.9. So, you know, his, his pace was just fen phenomenal until the end. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then uh, I saw someone uh, posted his his lap times up and I think um, uh, Pedrosa did something like 14 or 15 laps under the lap record, uh, under the existing lap record. Uh, and the next person after that was was Rossi, who had something like two or maybe three. So it, it really was. And as you say, you really saw Rossi uh, pushing for two or three laps really, really hard. Um, yeah. I went back and watched... Um, uh, or watch the race from the from the helicopter and also uh, from the helicopter shot on the MotoGP.com website. You can actually choose which which view you want to see, which is fun to do. Um, uh, watched it from the helicopter, watched it from the onboards, and you could see that um, once Pedrosa got past Rossi, that that Rossi really changed his style. He 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 was really pushing at the absolute limit. It was almost like he was taking on. He was riding a lot more ragged. He was starting to take on almost Honda esque lines in and away in an attempt to keep up with him. And um, he just couldn't make it. He just um, he kept on trying until he made it until he made a mistake. At that point, he thought, "Well, I can try and stay with Pedrosa, but I'm just risking too much. There's too much risk. I'm going to fall off and lose it all." Uh, so he just sort of, you know, stepped it back a little bit, uh, conceded defeat, and, and and accepted second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you could see really the market difference between Ross's reaction in part for me at Silver where he was, you know, delighted to finish third. Importantly, I guess, because he was ahead of Mark Marquez and his reaction here where, um, you know, it looked like someone had shot his, his dog, um, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was it was clear that this was one that he had earmarked as a, a certain 
seen a victory. And those extra five points, you know, wouldn't necessarily have reignited the, the, the title fight, but, you know, would have got a long way uh, into, you know, reducing Marquez's championship lead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the difference between, uh, you know, being, uh, being close uh, or, well, closing up a little bit and actually opening the championship again. Um, it, it's um, what's the, the 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 difference now? I think is forty three points. Uh, yeah, on. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah See, so the, the the difference would have been sort of forty three, forty three, or thirty eight points. Thirty eight points suddenly starts to look uh, a lot more uh, a lot more doable than forty three over five races. Yeah. Um, but I totally agree. He looks Rossi looks the most disappointed I've seen him in a long time. But do you think that was uh, disappointed? Um, because he didn't win at home or disappointed because he'd been foiled once again in actually getting some really big or some bigger points in uh, uh, gaining big points on markers? I think it was a mixture of both, definitely. Um, we see how often Rossi used Mizano to practice. Um, he has guys from the VR46 Academy. They go to Mizano quite often uh, to test a run. They're usually on R6s or on R1s. So this is a track that he... You know, he knows incredibly well. Um, and I remember last year he finished fifth in that kind of crazy flag-to-flag race. And although that was a good result because Lorenzo crashed, he was still pretty gutted. I remember speaking after that race because, he, you know, it was, he was off the podium in front of his own fans. Um, he had come so close to victory in Mugello this year and, you know, wasn't able to do it. And I think it means he's only won one time at home in the last yeah. six years. You know, so I think that was definitely a factor. Um, but then obviously, I think there was just some frustration boiling over. Well, not boiling over, but, you know, showing that in the last four races, he's been, he's beaten Marquez in each of those four races. And he really hasn't got a massive points haul to show for that. Um, in, any other, in any other year, you know, perhaps you wouldn't have the, the, the same kind of variety uh, of names up challenging for the race wins. And you could quite feasibly see Rossi maybe finishing first at a race and Lorenzo second and Marquez third. And, you know, each time he finished ahead of Marquez, getting some very substantial points but every time it's been uh, three points here two points there uh, seven points like it was on Sunday um, you know and ultimately it's just not enough whenever you're fighting your way back from a 59 point deficit as he was yeah I, th- I think you said after um, uh, uh, after the race that basically in four races he'd made up 16 points which is it, 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 you know it's just not the kind of points haul and certainly the, the fact that we have had eight winners we keep on having different winners um, uh, it keeps taking Taking points away from Rossi, um, it makes it much more difficult to actually make big points because of the. I mean, to an extent, that's what I really like about the about the Grand Prix point system is that you uh, the, the being on the you get a big reward for being on the podium. Um, uh, you know, beating someone by coming sixth instead of seventh will only gain you a point, but beating someone by coming sort of second instead of third or third instead of fourth, yeah, you're you're getting a lot more points. And I think uh, I definitely think that encourages riders to take more risks to to get on the podium. But uh, you know, Cal Crutchlow getting second at Silverstone. That's a big. That makes a big dent on on Rossi's points. All that all of these people are getting in between and, and robbing him of those extra podium points. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of the of the person that really robbed him at Mizano, uh, Pedroza. I mean, he said after the race, David, that Silverstone was really a weekend where he started to feel comfortable again. And we could see in the race there that, you know, there were signs of the old Pedroza there. I think he finished less than a second off Marquez. Uh, you know, after the race, what was he? What was he saying? 
where is this kind of return of form, you know, originated from? Uh, it, it it basically started at Bruneau. Um, I mean, there's I think there's a few things that came together. Uh, first of all, there is um, the fact that um, at Mizano we just had a stable weekend where you had the same conditions all weekend or more or less the same conditions all weekend. Track temperature varied a little bit, uh, but it didn't rain. Uh, we didn't lose any track time. Uh, everyone got a chance to test out all the bare bits and pieces they wanted. Um, uh, at Bruneau... Um, Basically, Pedrosa and his crew decided to go back to basics. They sorted through at the test. They sorted through all of the all of the bits and pieces they had, and decided on a single package. Um, and they focused uh, just on deciding what they're going to work with going forward. So you know, a chassis and all the rest of it. Uh, when Honda have bought uh, bought new bits, they've just said, "No, we're not interested. We're working on this." Um, at Silverstone, they sort of just focused on that. Worked on uh, a basic on a on a basic bike setting um, that allowed. Pedrosa just to focus on understanding the tyres, learning the tyres, working the tyres and finding out exactly how they feel, um, which I think he hasn't done before because the tyres have kept, have kept changing. Uh, Honda keeps changing the electronics. There's been lots and lots of all these various you know bits and pieces coming uh, coming past which have just meant him to confuse. So they he basically just went back to basics. Um, and it all came together at Misano where you know it just worked. The conditions worked in his favor he could get heat into the tires um he had a base setting which which worked so he could concentrate on getting the uh, getting there getting the maximum uh, out of it um there's the wings also of course he's the only rider who doesn't use the wings so perhaps that stressed the the the, the front tire less but um what do you think Neil? about the wings yeah yeah it's interesting i mean um because pretty much everyone you well Maybe they're not. Um, maybe riders aren't willing to to speak their whole truth. But you know, you definitely get the impression that um, a lot of the times riders do play down um, just how big an impact the, the wings have. Um, and with Pedroza, yeah, it's strange. He's he's been one that's pretty much rejected them right the way through the season. He, I remember, I think it was at Jerez we saw Marquez was was trying the three pronged wings, um, and he was kind of saying that yeah, there's benefits here and there's benefits there. But Pedroza was always just very flat and straight up about you know saying that they weren't really for him. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. Could it be a factor that because of these electronics improvements here that he doesn't necessarily feel the need? to well, to have uh, that improvement in acceleration yeah but possibly he also um uh, i think the thing he complained of with the wings is that they um uh, they feel uh, unstable uh, he doesn't like the, they 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 make the bike a little bit less stable and obviously when you're 50 or 49 or whatever um two and a half kilos like Danny Pedrosa is um uh, anything which makes the bike unstable is is, is going to be bad for him. Um, I I do I, I wonder if that is if the the benefit of the wings the downforce um, uh, is if he lo if he feels he loses in places like corners maybe corner entry um, that uh, w with the wings that that. Are easier for larger or or, or heavier riders to uh, to cope with, and they could just be very small differences. But you know, motorcycle racing is all about the tiniest little different differences and uh, and just general confidence. 
Yeah, it's interesting because Ian O'Neill was talking on Thursday, I believe, about the arm pump issues that he experienced during the Silverstone race. And this was one of the things that he meant that he touched upon. He said that with the wings, basically, um, a lot of a lot of energy is sort of burnt off by the the front of the motorcycle moving. But when that's pretty much planted to the ground, that energy has to build off somewhere else, and therefore it becomes a little bit more aggressive, a bit more of a wild ride. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that energy goes into the chassis somehow, and sure. uh, it, it just needs, um, it, it, you, yeah, as you say, it becomes more of a wild ride. So you have to grip on a little bit um, uh, tighter to. To, to hold the thing the whole thing planted but I think that's a very good point about uh, about what Ian Oney said both Ian Oney and Dovichosa had problems with our uh, arm pump at Silverstone with those wings so obviously the wings are causing some kind of um, they're adding some extra stress into the chassis yeah and it's interesting that you know Honda signed Pedroza for another two years after 2016 they you know they haven't been standing still trying to you know they've been really trying a lot of things to try and get Pedroza's uh, motivation back. Not motivation, but you know, get his uh, his mojo back. Um, and I think we learned last week that uh, he's been using or calling upon the advice of uh, an old friend, Juan Martinez, um, who works, I think, for Spanish TV. Used to be the crew chief for Nicky Hayden and Sete Gibernoy, and I believe is a close friend of Pedroza. And he's been. Uh, offering Pedroza just advice on preparation, um, how you know how to go about approaching the race weekend and things like this. Um, I think he was keen to stress that it was not on technical matters. You know, he's not part of the the Repsol Honda team. Well, that's um, that's obviously a legally he's legally obliged by his lawyer to say that uh, <laughs> because he's not supposed to to uh, to to share that kind of uh, data. Whether he does or not, I mean, we have to take him at his word that he doesn't. Yeah, uh, sure. But uh, I mean, you'll never know whether he's telling the truth because he because he has to say that. Yeah. Um, but I under I mean I I think you told us that uh, he was actually trying to get Martinez to be his crew chief yeah i think you know speaking to a couple of the spanish journalists that work in the paddock um this was this was pretty clear um a few different journalists had told me that even as early as uh i think barcelona and at the start of the summer pedros had been looking at martinez uh, as a potential replacement um for ramon orin his crew his current crew chief um and i believe that martinez was actually someone that pedros had wanted to work with in the past uh, perhaps even whenever Mike Leitner left his team uh, at the end of 2014. Um, so, you know, having someone in there, well, not in there, but having someone to, you know, to talk to and discuss these matters, you know, could be one of the small factors that contributed to to this, uh, this kind of return of, of form, this resurgence. Yeah, it's interesting that Martinez turned him down because um, uh, I think you told us that he was more interested in uh, he had no interest in becoming a crew chief again. He was happy because he works for the uh, for the TV as an analyst for Spanish yeah. TV as an analyst. Sure. Um, and uh, I think working for Spanish TV and uh, as an analyst is, uh, is a lot easier job than um, uh, than actually being a full time crew chief because he gets to home go home between races. Yeah. He doesn't have to go to testing. Yeah. Um, doesn't have to work stick his stick in a garage to you know till sort of ten o'clock at night. Basically, you know, come come seven o'clock, he's off to the restaurant and um, uh, knocking lighten up that cigar. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. No- knocking back the sherries. Yeah. Well, my understanding is that Martinez has a. I think he has a, a, a kind of a company. A, uh, might be a suspension company that's in Barcelona. So that is something that obviously yeah. uh, requires his attention and. 
he either has or is about to have a young child uh, or a baby. Um, and that is also something that uh, that convinced him not to come back and become a full-time member of, you know, the sort of traveling circus that requires you to be away for so many weekends a year. But something also interesting that I heard in Mizano was that, uh, and I heard this earlier in the year too, that Lorenzo, before he chose or before he settled on his eventual decision for his crew chief at Ducati, um, Christian Gabarini, he also wanted Juan Martinez uh, to be to be in his corner. So Martinez is certainly a man in demand. Yeah, exactly. We, we, he was always highly rated. I spoke to Olivia Super about uh, about crew chiefs for a story I'm going to put on the website uh, in the next few days. Um, uh, but he also talks about getting Juan Martinez in for... Um, uh, uh, for... Nicky Hayden at uh, Ducati. Also, uh, w- what was interesting, he said it, was, it wasn't so much the technical issue because Hayden's crew chief at the time, there was nothing wrong with his technical ability. His problem was more uh, the communication. It's about the chemistry. I mean, the, 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 that whole uh, relationship um between crew chief and uh, uh, crew chief and rider is is uh, I yeah, I spoke to um, uh, did an interview with Tom Tom O'Kane about Alicia Spargro and he um, uh, he said basically it was like uh, it, the, the, when they first met it was like a, it was like a first date there is there is almost like a a romantic relationship so it's that the whole relationship between the two that's really it, it it's really complex so you can see why uh, pedrosa would be looking for something extra and trying to find the right person and just one final point about uh, about pedrosa and crew chiefs um we learned over the weekend rather surprisingly that uh, scott redding's current crew chief Giacomo Guidotti, is going to be moving to Repsol honda next year um, there had been long, there had long been rumours about Pedroza wanting to change, and it always seemed that Ramon Orin was potentially going to move on somewhere else in Honda. Um, so, so Guidotti is going is going there, uh, which is which is also quite interesting. And Ramon Orin, I believe, is going to be working with Jack Miller to replace Christian Gabarini. So it's almost as if you know now that uh, you know since we've had a couple of months, you know where everything's been very settled in the riders' market. Now it's time to watch everything behind the scenes move and change. And we've got this kind of very interesting situation where, you know, different teams are picking members from each, you know, different teams and different manufacturers. And, you know, with KTM coming in, I think that's also a factor as well. They're, you know, kind of handpicking Mike Leitner there and working at KTM. He's handpicking people from different teams that he's worked for in the past or worked with in the past. And, uh, yeah, we've got a bit of uh, musical chairs going on. So I think... uh, there will be more to come in the coming weeks. I I think so. Right. Well, we shall take a quick break. And when we come back, we shall uh, talk about what happened behind Danny Pedrosa. Hey, guys. Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash podcast. All right. Now back to the show. And welcome back. So, apart from Danny Pedrosa being the man of the moment, um, there was plenty that went on behind um, uh, behind Pedrosa's victory. Obviously, 
Valentino Rossi came second. As we discussed, uh, he was very disappointed about it. Um, also, because he didn't gain that many points back on uh, uh, on Mark Marquez, um, but he was, you know, he was the best of the rest, and he looked for a while like he was actually going to win this. He did. He definitely did. He, I think. He said pretty much um, from the off he wanted to lead and he wanted to get out front and dictate the pace and not really have anything to worry about. Um, I guess he was also thinking back to Mugello where, you know, his his tactic was to sit in behind Lorenzo and see what he was doing and then make his move later on the race. Here it was a much more direct, I'm getting to the front as soon as possible. We saw that in the aggressiveness of his move on Lorenzo in the second lap, um, which I thought was, you know, I thought that was a, a clean enough move it was a tough move but it was it was certainly wasn't uh you know i don't think there was anything dirty or crazy about it no i mean it's not the kind of move you would expect from uh teammates who are working together to uh, secure the um, the the interests uh, of uh, of a team or a factory but i don't i'm not entirely convinced that valentino rossi and jorge lorenzo have ever truly been teammates i think there there's been sort of moments of truce but from the very beginning uh, i mean basically rossi try, or rossi tried to block lorenzo entering the team and their relationship has gone downhill from there yeah uh, yeah, sure. I guess, you know, there was the, you could say there was an improvement in relations whenever Rossi came back in 2013 and there was a little bit where they were kind of a bit lovey-dovey in certain press conferences, a little gushy on certain matters, but you, you never really got the impression that they were going out for uh, a glass of wine and uh, a yeah, pizza but that, after the that racing, basic, you know? Yeah, that basically lasted until uh, 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 Rossi was competitive with Lorenzo again and, and uh, particularly last year, their relationship went completely downhill uh, with comments about uh, uh, Lorenzo making comments about Rossi being lucky and uh, um, uh, and him having bad luck and Rossi sort of firing back about um, uh, I seem to be surprisingly fast for someone who's lucky and uh, um, uh, all these all these other bits and pieces. Then of course, uh, well, yeah, uh, Philip Island, Sepang, Valencia that um, didn't do anything to uh, endear uh, the, the two of them, bring them closer together in in harmony and unity. Um, so. So yeah, I mean their their relationship has been strained. I remember, well, yeah, that's right. I remember we were both at the at the Yamaha launch, and I remember Valentino Rossi coming in, in, being in that sort of corner room where they did the presentation, the team presentation, and having Valentino Rossi come in from one side and Jorge Lorenzo come in from the other side, and you sort of thought, well, it's actually, I mean, it's quite a nice way to actually present it. But did they do that so that they the the two had to wait in separate rooms and not ha- actually have to be in the same room together? Yeah, I'd imagine so I would definitely imagine so I don't think there's been any uh, contact or talking this year at all um, and and you know that's not really a surprise considering what happened at the end of 2015 um, but yeah there's there's sort of been simmering um, you know simmering kind of resentment there in the last couple of races you know I remember at the start of the year in Qatar it was pretty much every day both were coming out you know given real zinger of zingers of uh, of lines to the press you know real headline grabbing stuff and it's been a little bit quieter since then but uh, but yeah it all kicked off again after the race here Lorenzo was pretty critical of Rossi's move on the second lap he didn't think it was uh, it was appropriate um, especially to make a, you know it wasn't an appropriate move to make on your teammate uh, and I yeah, think, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think he was. Uh, I think he was p- 
protesting a little bit too much. Like uh, I agree with your assessment. It was a perfectly legitimate move to make. Um, he dived up the inside and took the corner and uh, Lorenzo came back trying to block him, but uh, found that he was already passed. Um pff- just the way it was. Then, um, of course, Lorenzo, when he was asked about the uh, about the move by a by a journalist, um, Lorenzo decided to complain about being aggressive. And then we had the entertaining spectacle of two grown men bickering like uh, uh, like like five year olds about, no, you're worse than I am, and um, uh, uh, and he is. And Rossi saying, yeah, well, you've done lots of aggressive moves, and then not being able to actually name very many of them despite the fact that there are more than a few moves which Lorenzo's have, have has put on other riders which have been dubious but um yeah, yeah it, it kept it certainly livened up the press conference yeah it did and you know as I it was kind of mentioning before I think it was after um the race in Bernal and uh, Rossi was asked about the championship and he was obviously trying to play it down and he was talking about his focus being solely on Lorenzo and beating Lorenzo for a second place. And I just happened to be in Lorenzo's Spanish debrief that day. And someone put this to him, you know, this was Rossi's, uh, this was Rossi's aim going forward for the rest of the, the year. And Jorge just exploded into this kind of, this, uh, this funny little monologue about going back through the records and compare Valentino's record since he's been on the Yamaha and I've been on the Yamaha with the same tyres and come back and tell me who's had more pole positions, who's had more wins, who's had more world championships. And I think you'll be quite uh, quite surprised. <laughs> his, his, his reaction was something along those lines, you know. So so anytime that, that Jorge's uh, had an opportunity to, you know, to throw something in his teammates' direction, he's, he's quite happily done so. And you just got the impression again. I, you know, there was something I saw before going to Mizano on the internet, there was a picture of Rossi at the ranch. I think it was on the Wednesday, and he invited all his crew over. And that's you know that's totally understandable. But there was a photo of him and his crew standing outside the ranch, and also in the photo were Lynn Jarvis, uh, Sudasen, and also I think Mayo Marigali. You know, three of the members of the kind of Yamaha management, or you know, technical uh, high up in the technical department, and. Things like that, you know, you, you don't see those guys, you know, going to Lorenzo's house and posing for a, you know, a photo with him. I'm pretty sure that there's just, you know, there's stages where Lorenzo looks at these things and just gets riled by it. You've also got to suspect that um, uh, uh, Valentino Rossi has an inkling that um, uh, Jorge Lorenzo might look at his pictures on Instagram from time to time. And so posting a picture of uh, basically all of Yamaha motor racing minus Jorge Lorenzo um, <laughs> is going to, uh, it, 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 he's got to be, uh, Rossi must be thinking, well, you know, I wonder what Jorge's reaction will be if he sees that. Yeah, exactly. I hope he doesn't get too upset by it. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and, and we're now entering the last five races of, of what potentially of his career. And you just wonder whether they'll hold back any further. I don't think they will. I think any time there's a chance where, you know, they come up against one another, they're both fighting for a second in the championship. I think uh, sparks will continue to fly. Yeah, and it's uh, it, to be perfectly frank, I think it's going to get a lot worse next year once um, uh, Lorenzo is at Ducati and uh, the, uh, Lorenzo, Marquez and Rossi are all on different teams and all uh, uh, freely able to speak. So, uh, so we shall see. However, I have to say that both Lorenzo and Rossi said after the race um, about the results, they all said, you know, this was the pace we had, couldn't do any better. We finished, we, yeah, we finished more or less where we were going to finish. 
absolutely. And, you know, Lorenzo, yeah, he was a bit childish in the press conference, but in terms of the race, you know, it's not the first time that he's been very supporting and he's doffed his hat in the direction of uh, of the people that have been faster than him, uh, namely Rossi and, and Pedroza. You know, he was he was just willing to admit that, you know, if I just had maybe one tenth, one and a half tenths on in certain laps, maybe I could have uh, I could have been with him. But in the end, he just didn't have the speed. And he said there was no real there was no real issues. He said there was one or two corners where he wasn't able to break just quite exactly how he liked. But he said, for the most part, uh, his bike was great. And, you know, that's quite baffling to hear Jorge Lorenzo say that without looking absolutely mentally destroyed uh, at a track at which he's had so much success in the past. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at the results he's had in the last couple of races, he was probably just happy um, to have been back you know where he belongs um and and also having looked competitive because his pole lap on uh, on saturday was absolutely fantastic it was um uh, it was just fascinating to fascinating to watch he totally uh, almost unlorenzo like dominated the bike the bike was moving around all over the place he got i don't think uh, it would have been possible to go m- any faster around uh, around the Misano circuit than he did on on Saturday. So I think he was just mostly just relieved at being able to be competitive again because uh, he certainly wasn't particularly at uh, 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 at Silverstone. Um, he wasn't he wasn't really at uh, uh, at Brno. Um, he, he just. Yeah, uh, he really needed to get back on it, basically. Yeah, but I think his reaction also conveyed that he is long since given up the the chase. You know, realistic hopes of of winning the championship this yeah. year. Um, yeah, because if if he had any uh, hopes, uh, he would have been very irked by the result. And he said, you know, as you say, he was relieved just to be back on the pace, and you know that's that's not going to be good enough to to haul Marquez in. No, but I think you have to believe that um, uh, he's completely forgiven, given up on the uh, on the championship just because he needs too many points, and it's being it's it's just becoming too uh, it, it's too difficult for uh, to actually get the point. I mean, there are five races left. Um, Lorenzo is sixty one points down. Um, that is over ten. Was that twelve points? More than twelve points a race. Uh, that that requires. Um, Lorenzo to win all four, uh, uh, well, all five of the uh, of, of the rest of the races, um, and uh, Marquez to finish off the podium in all of them, and even worse in at least one of them. So it's it, it, it it's not really it's not realistic. Even even for Rossi, the difference between uh, I think Rossi has a score eight point six points per race more than Lorenzo, which basically oh, more than Mar- Marquez, sorry, which basically means that Marquez um, he has to win all the races and Marquez has to finish third um, uh, but the, again there are tracks coming up where you have to think that Marquez is going to be really really strong uh, and start winning in yeah and again I thought this you know I kind of had this idea in my head that recent events Marquez getting beaten by Rossi in Silverstone even though he had the pace to, to finish ahead of, of the Yamaha I thought that this was going to play in his mind a little bit and this weekend was going to be, you know, represented an opportunity to really stuff one under Rossi, you know, and especially at this home track. And his, indeed his, his pace through pre-practice was very, very strong, very consistent, very impressive. Um, 
but yeah, he just didn't have the speed. And, and you know, in fairness, I think he had a crash on in morning warm up moments after he uh, moments after he set the fastest lap of that session. And um, I think that was maybe a good thing that happened to him because it let him see just the risks that he was having to take yeah. running at a, a certain pace. Um, and indeed, there were. I think he said after uh, Sunday's race that there were moments when he was trying to keep up with Lorenzo, with Rossi, and he just said, this isn't sustainable, this isn't going to work. And he just had to reel it back in a little bit and, you know, just basically cross his fingers and hope that Ross, uh, Pedroza was going to cr- catch Rossi, which he did in the end. So, um, you know, again, another another occasion, we've, we've pretty much been saying this for the last seven, eight races, pretty much all season, in fact, um, that... You know, Mark isn't getting lost in the heat of the battle, and he's able to think very logically, very wisely, and you know, it's it's going to be enough to win this this championship for him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, again, it was a really, really mature, um, uh, uh, a really mature performance. And uh, I asked him in his debrief, you know, this is like the fourth race in a row when you finish behind Rossi, isn't that starting to get frustrating? And he went, ooh, pressure, pressure. Um, uh, it, it, it's taking the piss out of me a little bit, um, which is fair enough, really. But I think he's, he's fully aware of it all. Um, but he is willing to accept it because he is looking at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture being, uh, yeah, basically, he, he's in it to become champion. Um, and I think also he sees other tracks. You know, we go, next up is Aragon. That's going to be a better track for the Hondas. Mategi, um, uh, not so much. Mategi might be more of a track for the Yamahas, maybe the Ducatis. Uh, Sepang is the track where the Hondas go well. Phillip Island, but then again, you know, Phillip Island is a track where where almost everyone goes well. And where Maverick Vinales has said he's going to win the uh, win his second race. Um, Valencia is a track where... Again, it, well, yeah, the Lorenzo versus Marquez might happen. Um, so I think he's just he's sort of biding his time, thinking it's okay, it's okay. There'll be more, there'll be more wins coming. First of all, we need to secure the championship. Yeah, and he said that he had sat down, I'm guessing, over the summer break and analysed each circuit and probably thought about the different connotations of results, who can finish where. And he said that Mazzano was one of those that he really was quite worried about. Um, so to come away from having lost seven points was was just fine in his books. Yeah, exactly. He, say, he did say that you know this was this was the, point, the 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 track that he was most afraid of. He was afraid he was going to lose a lot of points here. Um, so uh, Pedrosa finishing in uh, Pedrosa winning actually did him a massive favour, and only losing seven points uh, uh, to Rossi was uh, was entirely entirely acceptable. Uh, the people we were expecting to see further forward were the Ducatis, but that didn't happen. No, it didn't. And it didn't get off to the best start for, for Ducati with Andrea Iannone falling out of the action in the first pre-practice session. I think maybe in the first third of the first pre-practice session, in fact, um, at turn 13 or 14, a uh, fast old place to come off on a MotoGP bike. And the subsequent trips through the gravel trap um, saw him fracturing his uh, D3 vertebrae. Um, and yeah, basically ruled him out of the weekend. Um, I think that was there was a bit of controversy about that. Uh, there were sort of differing views from different medical personnel uh, on Ian O'Neill's injury and whether he could race. Um, but certainly, from speaking to Ian O'Neill on Saturday morning when it had 
just after it had been announced that he wasn't going to ride in the rest of the weekend, judging by, you know, his, his physical condition then, I thought, you know, this doesn't look like a guy that could complete a race, 28 laps in 30 degree heat uh, with any great deal of comfort. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was having, he was clearly in discomfort just standing there talking to us. Um, but, uh, Which is yeah, completely he, understandable, knowing us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's, it was actually quite difficult to tell the difference between his, <laughs> a rider's normal demeanour when having, being forced to talk to us. Then. But um, um, you could, despite the fact that he was obviously in pain, um, he was he still absolutely determined to uh, uh, to ride and disappointed that he hadn't been allowed to. Uh, the daughter, Dorna's doctors had said he could ride. Um, he'd been past fit, uh, but had to have a separate medical by, with the circuit doctor and it's always at each track it's the circuit doctor who has the final say and the circuit circuit doctor said basically no you're not riding um he didn't find you know didn't want to risk it um too dangerous uh i think if there's a track where you might expect the uh, the circuit doctors to be a little bit cautious it might be misano because of uh, the unfortunate history at the track so um i mean with rainy having crashed and ended up in a wheelchair here in 93 um with Tommy Zawa's tragic death in uh, 2010 uh, yeah i mean you can you can understand and also well with uh, the Italian uh, the uh, Italian legislation being such that it uh, it's extremely it's more than a little inconvenient when riders actually die at uh, at circuits it, it, it creates absolute havoc for the um, uh, for the circuit and for all the people involved um, the uh, legal investigations are opened and all sorts of uh, all sorts of things I think there's a presumption of guilt rather than a presumption of innocence so it it all becomes very very difficult. Um, um, did, did 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 what do you think? Do you think the do you think the circuit erred on the side of caution or? Yeah, I think rightly so. Um, I mean, it wasn't. I don't think it was going to be a a, a weekend um, at which Ianone was going to score a podium. I think realistically, going into that race, the best he could hope for was fifth with the two movie star Yamahas and Repsol Hondas finishing. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I think with, um, I'm not sure exactly the, the, the true extent of this injury, but I believe it's a, it's a vertebrae. And when you say vertebrae, it's obviously quite disconcerting, but it's a, a vertebrae in the, the thorax. Is that right, Dave? That's right. It's a, it's basically in the, uh, in the upper back. The T3 is somewhere in the, uh, is somewhere in the upper back. Uh, as I understand it, the, 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 the fraction, the, the fracture, it was a compression fracture. So there's a fracture at the front of the vertebrae, which means that, um, uh, in the case, or at least Ianoni was was saying that it, it, that's less bad because it means that in the case you're less likely to re-injure it or make the injury worse should you crash. But the trouble is the consequences of your injury. It's not like a wrist where if you fall off and uh, you know you fracture you fracture your wrist uh, wrist and it's a bit painful and you you think oh sorry I can ride you ride fall off and completely break it. That is um, uh, unfortunate, but you know, to you might be forced to miss a race. But if you fall off and refracture a vertebra, then you know you might be able to. You might be forced to miss an entire career or end up in a uh, end up in a wheelchair, and that would uh, that would not be good for anything. And yet, 
Ianoni was very, very clear when he spoke to us about it, um, saying, you know, he knows this is dangerous. We, what was it? What did he say? Something about we race, we ride under 350 kilometers an hour all the time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you know, he's a he's an Italian guy, and it was his last weekend an Italian machine in front of his home crowd. You know, I think we can we can understand where his frustrations came from. Um, but yeah, but it, overall, it was a difficult weekend. I mean, Davizioso had decent pace, but was never really able to threaten the front. Um, didn't really have any answers for Vinales, who found it quite difficult to pass him in the race. But once Vinales was through, I think, um, you know, that was it. The, you know, the place was more or less settled. And, um, yeah, and then you look at the, um, look at, I mean, Pero initially was, was wildcarding this weekend. And then after he known his in, injury, he stood in for, for Andrea. He had a, a pretty impressive weekend, qualifying fifth, finishing seventh. Um, but you look at the, uh, you look at the, the satellite Chicani teams and it was just another nightmare. Primac in particular, yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 the, the two Primacs I think were distraught, really. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very down and dejected at the end of uh, at the end of the at the end of the weekend. I think Patricia was eleventh, Reading was fifteenth, and they couldn't get the the new front tires that Michelin had brought to work for them. Um, they just felt that there wasn't a great deal of edge grip. Um, they also felt that there was a different feel with the tires from session to session. Obviously, temperature was to do with that, but they kind of found. Some other instances, um, maybe the the same compound would give different feelings. Uh, a couple of riders actually mentioned this over the weekend. Yeah, there were there, there were a few riders. I think Valentino Rossi complained about it. Um, uh, I think Lorenzo might have complained about it. Certainly, one of the Hondas, maybe Marquez, complained about it. There were several people throughout the weekend who all said, you know, we're, uh, put the same tire on and it felt completely different. Um, uh, Michelin have said they're going to actually investigate this, go away and, and have a look and try and understand why why it should happen. Um, I got a telling off for using the world uh, the words quality control um uh, <laughs> quality control issues in the in the press conference but there is clearly there's this if they if multiple riders are reporting there is a difference between what seemingly identical tires uh then there is there is something going on but as a rule the Michelins have been fairly consistent throughout the uh, throughout the year, um, so it does seem. But perhaps because uh, Michelin produced a new batch of tyres to come and race here um, uh, for uh, after Ducati and Aprilia are tested, uh, perhaps that was that was the cause of the problems. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That's an interesting point. Um, yeah, so it, it was it was uh, it was it was quite. Um, quite distressing. Distressing is maybe a bit stronger word, but uh, yeah, saddening to see both of the Primac guys uh, looking as downbeat as they were. Um, and it was, it was it was quite interesting because obviously Reading has just found out that he's lost his crew chief, a guy that he gets on well well with, um, and he now has to search for someone else and you know start this relationship all over again. Um, but it's happened at a time when it's believed that one of those riders is going to have a GP17 for next year, um, which will either be the same or very, very, very similar to the bike that Lorenzo and Davizioz will ride. Um, so there's this kind of carrot dangling in front of both Petrucci and Redding. And it was quite interesting. Petrucci said that, you know, since they got wind of this, since they heard of this, their performances have just dropped away. Um, and he thinks that this is this is definitely one of the reasons, just the, that kind of extra pressure that that exists uh, within that team. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, presumably the reason for having an extra GP17 in the uh, uh, in the Pramac team is because it will produce more data for uh, um, for the for the factory. I mean, obviously, the however much I mean, however much um, Ducati are actually spending on on Lorenzo, and they do say it's twelve million a year. Um, they have to win. They have to win races with him, and they have to win championships with him. Uh, so that means that they are going to put do everything they can to actually find a way to win. Uh, and that, if that means gathering, you know, giving giving Pramac a GP17 and gathering extra data, then that's going to help. But you have to wonder whether just giving one rider a GP17 if it isn't making things more complicated because it's. Uh, creating sort of jealousies within the team and problems within the uh, in the team, stress within the team. Um, it might actually be more useful to give them both GP17s. Um, no idea how feasible that is. Presumably not feasible. Otherwise, they would have done it. Um, <laughs> uh, to actually make it a little bit e- a little bit easier and allow like both uh, both riders just to focus, and get on with it, and try and um, uh, uh, try and produce as much. Uh, uh, as much data for Ducati as possible to to ensure that Lorenzo is successful as possible. It's definitely interesting looking at the dynamics within Ducati um, on this matter because I spoke to Paolo Giovanni about it in Austria and he was very cagey on the matter, um, very, very cagey indeed, but he thought that it wasn't a good idea because of the reasons that you just mentioned. He felt that it would create some sort of division within Pramac and you know, ultimately would affect their results. But later that weekend, we also spoke to Delinia and he said that it's under discussions and it seems that Gigi is the one that's pushing for this. He thinks, you know what, who cares? Well, obviously he's not that reckless, but he's thinking, if it's for the greater good of Ducati, if it means that we can regularly win races, then let's do it. Absolutely no, no doubt, you know. Um, and I would, I would, it seems that maybe he would be the driving force behind this. Yeah, I, I think it really it most illustrates the difference between their two roles. I mean, um, Delinia is is head of Ducati Corsa, and all he cares about is. Um, uh, Ducati winning races and Ducati winning uh, championships, and he's not particularly interested in the fallout between the uh, uh, within the teams. Whereas uh, Chibati is sporting director, he's specifically, or he's especially charged with MotoGP. Um, he's much more closely involved with the teams, and so he's more he uh, is more directly involved with the consequences of all of these decisions so i think he you know it's a, it's a slightly different perspective um and he's seeing slightly different problems um so yeah i think you can see the the two of them are coming from slightly different uh, slightly different places but um uh, in the end Ducati is spending so much money on lorenzo that they have to win and they're going to do whatever it takes absolutely of course, Ducati wasn't the only Italian manufacturer at uh, Misano at their home race. We shall talk about uh, a surprising result for Aprilia when we come back from the break. Hi guys, it's David. If you listen to us via iTunes, could you be so kind as to leave us a review and give us a rating? This really helps other people find the show. Thanks a lot. So, 
back to Mizano MotoGP and to Aprilia. They had a surprisingly uh, solid set of results, really. A top 10 and a, a 10th for Bautista and 12th for Bradl. Yeah, I think Bautista at the end of the weekend said that this was his best MotoGP race weekend with Aprilia. Uh, his best qualifying, I think, the first time he got into Q2, uh, for which he was rewarded handsomely by Aprilia. I think that uh, we saw um, an article from Manuel Pacino this morning that said uh, that Aprilia had said to both riders that if they were to qualify for Q2, they would be they would be given one of the 2015 bikes, you know, as by way of expressing their gratitude. Um, and yeah, Bautista, Bautista was pretty good. I mean, um, he finished, what, 33 seconds off the race winner. That's not so bad. He was in the top 10. And he just said that overall everything had kind of come together and it, it seemed to work. It seemed to work quite well there. He's uh, he's he's definitely making some some decent progress towards the second half of this in the second half of this year. Yeah, I mean he he was really he was satisfied. I think is the best uh, is the best way to describe it. He was um, um, they had been playing around with some settings at the test um, and that had really helped. He'd got some acceleration. Um, he got some drive. Uh, the bike was turning a little bit better. Um, it was just you know generally lots of little small steps which made um, which made for an improvement. Uh, things were a bit tougher for, for Stefan Bradl because um, he had a new chassis. I mean uh, the. the Aprilia bought a new chassis, and the, and the new chassis is a uh, is a real upgrade because um, I, uh, Bautista was talking about being uh, being uh, oh yes oh yes it's an improvement, and it, when riders actually say it's an improvement, it means that it makes a big difference because normally they say oh it's, uh, there are small bits here and small bits there and uh, and all the rest of it, and it's it, it's hard to actually get a sense of whether they lo- prefer one. Um, one particular by one particular chassis over another, but this one was it was clearly better. Uh, but unfortunately for Bradl, the bike with the new chassis, he managed to um, uh, wad up at uh, I think in Silverstone. Um, that left him a little bit behind. They put he lost an engine there. Uh, had to use a different engine um, uh, at um, uh, at Misano. Uh, then he crashed again on the new bike, so he had to. Sleep he, uh, he had to use the old bike for uh, parts of the parts of the session, so he never really had a chance. He was swapping backwards and forwards between the two chassis, and he never really had a chance to uh, figure out which chassis he's supposed to be on uh, and get a feel for one of them over the other. Um, so he was sort of mildly annoyed at the end of the um, um, uh, at the end of the weekend, despite. I think left mostly he was left frustrated thing that there would have been much more in it if he'd have had sort of two bikes the same and been able to actually work on some setup. But it does really look like Caprilia is starting to make some progress. Yeah, absolutely. And from what Sam Lowe's has been saying, uh, you know, he hasn't really been able to say anything too much official about his time on the on the bike. But, um, you know, he says that he's, you know, quite a decent handling little machine. And, you know, I think one of the one of the issues that Bautista and Bradley have been saying for, through most of the year is that it is, when it comes to the race, they usually are quite competitive and they're able to challenge for lower positions in the top 10, you know, maybe around 11th or 12th. It's trying to get the bike over one lap to be fast. And they say that there's just a real lack of feeling, uh, understanding where the limit is whenever they are pushing for an outright lap time. And that has left them pretty much in poor qualifying positions throughout the year. And then they have to do the usual work of coming through some slower riders. And that obviously, you know, hinders the race. 
to an extent. So I think that's one area that they've said that they still really need to really need to work on to be able to get the bike to respond whenever it has very little fuel, new sticky tires, um, to be able to go out and do a balls to the wall uh, lap in qualifying. Uh, yeah, um, I, I also wonder how much that is that is to do with Michelin's because there's been a few riders who say, who said the same sort of thing. Uh, uh, and the opposite, for example, if you look at Valentino Rossi, you know, Valentino Rossi, uh, last year we were talking about uh, all he would talk about was well, you know I, I hope I hope to be able to get on the on the two front rows and more often than not he'd find them he'd find himself on the third or uh, he'd find himself on the third row uh, despite being obviously fast enough in the race um, this seems to be the other way round there's a few uh, now Rossi is really fast in um, uh, really fast in qualifying and, and it's a surprise when he's not on the front row rather than him actually being on the front row um, so clearly I think the Michelins have, uh, have, have had an effect um, uh, but also as you did well as you say the the, the settings and perhaps also the, the, the new chassis for the Aprilia is, is helping them get a little bit more feel and being able to push a little bit harder but um, there's still a lot of work to do yeah absolutely there may not have been much joy in MotoGP for uh, the uh, for the home crowd, but there definitely was in the Moto2 race. That was um, that we had uh, a, another first time winner this season, the twenty third, I think. Yeah, Lorenzo Baldassari uh, put the you know he righted the wrongs of Mugello, where he very narrowly missed out in his first uh, Grand Prix win. Um, he managed to save it up for Mizano. Uh, track that he obviously knows very well, and he won out in a very very tight battle with. Uh, you, know, you just have to say a heroic Alex Rins, who is almost got a touch of Marco Melandri about him. You know, Melandri almost excelled whenever he was riding injured. Uh, you know, he was able to find a greater level of concentration and not make as many mistakes when he was injured because, you know, he had this kind of heightened sense of what was going on around him and adrenaline and things like that. And, you know, Rins, you'd have to say, really since uh, he broke his collarbone he, he was very 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 impressive in Silverstone and then this was a deeply impressive race here in Mizano and he's pretty much turned this championship uh, deficit around three points now he trails Johan Zarco and really with five races to go it is all to play for because Zarco looks to be on the ropes yeah, I mean that's the strange thing about Zarco is really. Um, uh, I mean, last year he seemed to be sort of pretty much metronomic. He always knew he was going to be there. Um, this year, Zarco just looks. You know, there have been races where he's been. He's looked absolutely invincible and there have been races where he's looked absolutely invisible uh, it's been very much you it's been very much um, you just never know which which particular version is going to turn up uh, I think um, obviously he was engaged in battle with uh, Sam Lowe's Sam Lowe's managed to crash out uh, unfortunately just he was battling and I think Sam Sam really felt that he had a he had a chance at a decent a decent results uh, as as well yeah he had a quick shifter issue i think in the end um and he said that that in some ways contributed to to his falling out of the race and you know essentially the championship which is a great shame um because i think you know uh, obviously having three riders instead of two fighting for the championship would be great but just knowing you know obviously all riders put a lot into their racing but really sam had you know been from the the end of last year really been pinning his hopes on uh, taking this world championship all the way to the wire um and yeah it, it's probably not going to happen now 
it's not it isn't over until it's over but um uh it de- definitely yes he has a real mountain to climb now with so many dnfs i think also zarko also complained a little bit about tire issues the, the the tire didn't feel the same as it did when he went out on his um during qualifying and so he just didn't have the pace uh and that really helped uh rinse to get an awful lot of points back and completely reignites reignite the championship yeah yeah zarko was saying i mean we heard him speaking the uh the, the the press conference after qualifying um in that there's the top three from moto gp then there's the the fastest qualifier from moto three and moto two and Zarko was really very confident in that press conference i was quite taken aback at just how confident he was he was saying about you know uh, playing around with uh, the leaders in the first couple of laps and then trying to make a break he clearly felt that he had the pace to win that race and uh you know and the kind of opening to the moto two race was you know frenetic and you know crazy there's a great photo that uh someone from mark vds posted on the internet of uh, franco morbidelli's bike and basically <laughs> one side of the fairing is just completely black from uh, you know the rear tire rubber left or, you know left on the left on the fairing from sam lowe's um so you know that kind of gives an indication of just how frantic it was um and, and zarko just you know really seemed to be affected by that and couldn't get into his own rhythm um and i spoke to french a uh, French colleague uh, at the end of Sunday uh, just asking, you know, what his opinion was on Sarko. And he said that, yes, Sarko complained of these tyre issues, but at the same time, when he was complaining, he wasn't doing so with the conviction of a man that, you know, <laughs> feels that he was robbed, you know, felt that he, he had, you know, this was the one defining factor of the race. Uh, you know, it was more of a man who was almost wondering what had gone wrong. Yeah, scratching around, thinking, trying, trying to, trying to understand why, uh, why he hadn't been able to get the result he was uh, he'd been expecting. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, if the Moto Two Championship has, was blown wide open, I think the Moto Three Championship basically got sewn up uh, uh, at Misano. It did. It did. I mean, um, we've been talking about Brad Binder as a world champion and waiting for months now, I guess. Um, probably since Mugello, to be honest. Um, but he's just, you know, he hasn't let his focus get affected in any way. And if anything, he's just grown into this, uh, you know, this position he has of, of leading the world championship. And, and he really just, everything about him, you know, just smacks of confidence, smacks of a guy that is trying to accumulate as many wins, as many pole positions as possible because he hasn't always been in this, well, he's never been in this position before. And, you know, watching Zarko at work on Sunday was just like watching an absolute master. It was, you know, I felt in some ways bad for Bastianini because Zania rode a very, very good race yeah. um, to finish second. But, you know, listening to Binder after the race, you know, it was clear that he was just toying with his uh, his young Italian rival. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was almost uh, cruelty. Um, he basically d- d- allowed Bastianini to get past him, had a look at him for four or five laps, and th- and finished him off in the last couple. Um, uh, after taking pole position, um, it was an it was a very comfortable win. He never really doubted it. And as you say, uh, Binder. I mean, Binder is not a He's not an arrogant young man, but he has a swagger about him now for a very sort of, you know, polite, upstanding, you know, uh, quiet, withdrawn guy. He he's he has that swagger. He has that absolute confidence that um, uh, that everything is going to, uh, that, you know, that he's going to win and he's going to he's going to tie this up. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not, um, maybe sounded like I was being a bit harsh in Bastianini, his best result of the year. Another weekend where he has been strong and we're, you know, we're definitely seeing the old Enia. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, it was a brilliant, you know, it was bank. a great race from Bastianini. It's yeah. just that he was completely outclassed. Yeah, uh, sure. The, but that had nothing to do with Bastianini and everything to do with Brad Binder. Exactly. It was, it was really interesting as well. Um, we were speaking to him after the race. You asked him, Dave, um, what happened at the start of the last lap? Because I think we were maybe cutting back to the battle for third on the television. And whenever they crossed the line, Bastianini was leading. Binder was just behind and they were pretty much together. And the next time we saw them, it was a few corners later and Binder was maybe half a dozen bike lengths behind. And it looked as though he'd made a mistake. And you asked him about this and he was just very, very clear. You know, it's a guy that has just been thinking all race about how he's going to approach the last lap and how he's going to attack. And he said that he had actually slowed down because he knew Bastianini wouldn't want to lead onto the back straight. He would try and let Binder through at some point. So Binder slowed at the start of the lap to allow Ennia to build up a big enough advantage. Then he tried to go as you know as fast as possible, like all hell, and make sure he was closing on Bastia as he kind of entered Tremonto, which leads onto the back straight. And there you go. Yeah, he was there for the taking and he kind of weighed that up perfectly and, you know, executed uh, a well thought out plan, um, which is quite a lot for a Moto3 racer, you have to say. Yeah. And also, <laughs> I mean, you have to have incredible confidence that it's going to actually work, that you're going to be able to pull it off. Sure. Because the risks are that, you know, so you, you, you give him sort of what whatever it might be, three or four tenths, and uh, he's, Bastianini decides, oh, I quite like three and four tenths, but I prefer eight tenths, and buggers off into the distance. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 total, it's total confidence in his own ability to actually win this. I think it was he was helped a little bit uh, by the fact that he also, he knew... Um, the KTM is stronger on the brakes. He knew he was comfortable in uh, uh, getting the bike turned through that very, very fast uh, uh, turn eleven. Um, so again, he just had he just had everything uh, just had everything go right for him. Yeah, and we well spoke to Tom Jojic very briefly. Um, KTM's Tom Jojic. Uh, who was saying that basically uh, it was Mizano last year when KTM introduced this new chassis um, and the bike has not really changed that much since then. No, exactly. Um, no, I he mean, said it's, it's, all, it's, it's all set in work. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just knowledge of the bike and actually getting it, uh, getting it sorted. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the most intriguing thing for me is that now uh, the uh, basically – Binder, if Binder finishes second in Aragon, he wraps up the championship. He gets himself beyond any any hope of anyone being able to uh, uh, being uh, being able to catch him. Uh, he goes to we go to Aragon. Um, he is in the press press conference on Thursday. Uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure, a lot of focus on him. Uh, so I think we're really going to see what he is made of when we get to when we get to Aragon. Sure. But we saw last year, basically, Bindo's season just went on a continued unproved trajectory from yep. Mizano. Uh, he was in the victory fight at Aragon and funnily enough was taken out in the last lap by Bastianini. <laughs> uh, but he was in the, you know, he was there, I think, second behind Oliveira on that last lap when he did crash. And you look at the other, I think, take uh, the wet race of Mategi out of the equation, but all the other races, he was very strong and in the victory fight. So, you know, it's, yeah, it, it's uh, it's when and not if, certainly, for Brad Binder to win his first world championship. Yeah, exactly. You've got to wonder whether he'll be disappointed if he doesn't, uh, uh, if he doesn't wrap it up at, uh, um 
uh, Aragon and, and how he handles that. But anyway, we shall see. Uh, yeah. I think we have to have a special mention for the the man in third, Juan Mir. Uh, I think he really is coming through. I think you, you've had your eye on him for a little while um, and he really is living up to his potential. Yeah, he's fast. He's just a really very, very fast rider. And we saw that in the FIM Junior World Championship last year. Um, that potentially of all the rookies that stepped up, you would look at that class last year, which had Bulliger, Aaron Canet, Bo Benschneider. Um, and you would say that, that Mir was the fastest, had the most explosive kind of pace, but he felt on a lot. And I think that's effectively what cost him the championship or the, the FIM Junior World Championship last year. Um, but yeah, he's the, the first rookie to win it well the first rookie to win a dry race this year. Um, and he had good pace in qualifying, but ended up qualifying 16th. And yeah, he rode a great race. He came through the pack, wasn't a bother to him at all. And, you know, I think, I know Bindo wasn't going balls to the wall for the whole race, but for Mir to finish within two seconds of, of, of Binder, at a track that Binder likes in this kind of form, um, and also to hold off, comfortably hold off uh, Bulaga yeah. uh, at, at his home track. You know, I think that was a really impressive ride from Juan Mir. And it was also very impressive that, um, that Tom Jojic was saying that he's very, very keen for Mir to remain on a KTM next year because he feels that he definitely has the the, the approach and the ability to, to, to fight for the World Championship, which is, which is high praise indeed. Yeah, exactly. Because which sort of brings us a little bit to a, a tiny little bit of a silly season. It seems that Moto Two and Moto Three are now all uh, starting to move around and swap around, and um, we're starting to get some uh, uh, some rider signings. Shuan uh, Mir, um, uh, the Leopard team. Well, it's still not entirely sure whether they'll be continuing next year or not. Um, if they do continue, they will be uh, they will be switching to Honda, uh, switching back to Honda, I should say. Um, um, uh, which, if KTM want to keep uh, want to keep Juan Mir on a on a KTM, they'd have to move him out of that team. Um, we saw that um, Miguel Oliveira and Brad Binder will be the KTM Moto2 team stop uh, the press yeah, he's stop. just in yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly I have spent basically about the, about the last four races because I, I mean I picked up whispers about this and I've been trying to get um, uh, Brad Binder to say something on the record about it for the past four races and every time he keeps on saying oh no 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 no, no I don't, it's not fixed yet we've still got some details to figure out and not doing it, so uh, we shall we shall have to see. I mean, the KTM Moto Two project is interesting again. A trellis frame. Um, an interesting detail was that I was told um, by uh, Alex Baumgartner from from Calix that they have a gentleman's agreement with uh, KTM because KTM own WP suspension. Um, that uh, the the suspension technicians for WP in the KTM team will not be. Um, rider, there will not be te technicians who've previously worked with Calex, uh, uh, Calex Moto Two bikes, be, uh, to prevent you know any any semblance of, of of them stealing or you know transferring data from Calex to uh, to KTM. Um, there were well, there, there were there was a a bunch of other um, uh, Moto Two and Moto Three signings as uh, and and rumours of transfers as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so Binder obviously is stepping up to Moto Two. Nico Antonelli was take, will take his place in Akiyo's team. Uh, that will be very interesting because you know Nico, we know, 
we we know he's a fast kid, but his season's just gone off the edge of a cliff really in the, in recent races. Um, he hasn't been able to get started or sorted at all. Um, ben Schneider will stay with him in Io's team, which which will be quite formidable. Um, I think in Bastianini is going to replace Jorge Navarro in the Monlau Australia Galicia Honda setup, um, where he'll race with Canet. Navarro is going up to take Sam Lowe's place in the Grissini Moto2 team. Um, and then that means that Jorge Martin is taking Bastianini's place in Grissini's Honda uh, Moto3 squad, where he'll join the very impressive Fabio Di Giannatonio. Um, so yeah, there's lots of uh, lots of musical chairs and uh, team changes and team swaps and things like that. Um, and I think it's uh, yeah, it's good. It's going to be you know, it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be uh, you know we always say this before Moto Three season, but I think there will be uh, genuinely any one of eight that you could say, oh yeah, he'll earn, he'll end up as, as world champion. But Antonelli, I think is is the one I'm most interested in. You know, just what what can Akiyo do with uh, with Antonelli? Yeah, because clearly we have a lot of speed there. Yeah, but I mean, so much speed that uh, he occasionally has to lose some of it in the gravel, um, which is which is not uh, not the way to win a championship. And basically, it will be uh, can Aki Io screw his head on and stop him from falling off? Um, that's that's going to be that's going to be the big difference. But um, you know, if Io thinks you're talented, then uh, the chances are you are talented. Um, but as you say, a, a lot of the rookies will have had, will be in their second year. They'll have a, have a year's experience. They'll have an idea of uh, of what it takes to. They'll have an understanding of what it takes to actually be competitive all year long. Uh, um, really looking to see Didi Gian Antonio in his second year. I think that, that that's going to be fan, uh, fascinating. Um, been really impressed with him again. Shuan Mir, you you have to wonder if he's on a if he's on a good bike and a good team. <sighs> He's going to be he's going to be a kid to watch out for. So, um, uh, yeah, but also, quick word about Fabio Quattararo. It, it it looks like he's going to be going to Moto Two in the Ponce team, and yet that still that whole deal still hasn't been sorted out. He split with his manager, um, mm. and is now being managed by uh, by someone else, by another uh, another French manager. Um, that, that's confirmed. Then he is he, he's taken on. Uh, Eric, uh, Loris, Loris Eric, Eric May. No, well, I haven't. Um, I, I haven't had a, an official confirmation, but that's what um, that's what people have been whispering in my ear. Uh, okay, um, okay. Um, I think it's there's still sort of like talk uh, talk about. It. Nothing's been sort of like confirmed. Um, again, I think that to an extent sort of uh, explains perhaps some of his dodgy form. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, I mean that would. It, I think it'd be very interesting to see Quattararo in Moto Two, and I, I, I hope he does move up. I think it would be. Uh, I think it'd be a good move. Really? Yeah. No, I, I think he would definitely benefit from another year. Get him in a team that you know is is a competent team that is built around him, um, and that is prepared to work with him and give him confidence and not expect results straight away. I think Moto Two could be. You know, his his confidence can't be anywhere near where it needs to be right now and I think jumping into the blind on a Moto2 bike I don't know maybe I think it's too soon uh, you know the, kid, the kid's only 17 still you know he wouldn't detract too much from the long term if he did another year Moto3 and you know started winning races yeah I, I agree but if there's a, if there is a team which can take him on it, you know it's Ponce there are basically sort of three really good teams in, um, in Moto2 uh, there's the IO structure. There is um, uh, Mark VDS. Uh, there is Ponce, 
Uh, to a lesser extent, there's Grassini, um, but I wouldn't rate high, uh, Grassini as highly as I would rate um, uh, uh, Ponce or Mark VDS or uh, or Raya for that uh, uh, for that matter. So I think if you're gonna if you're definitely gonna go to Moto Two, um, and I mean obviously you need to have a you need to have a two year contract to make sure that you don't have the pressure on you to get immediate results. Um, but um, I I think. If there's a team which could do it, if there's a team you want to be in, it's it's the Ponce team. Fair enough. I mean, yeah. look at what they've done with Maverick Vinales. Look at what they did with uh, um, uh, with uh, Rintz, with uh, all, all these other guys. If you look at if you look at the history of the the people they've produced, it's really quite impressive. Paulus Bargaro. Sure, sure. Tito Rabanne. I mean, you know, it's it's definitely true. But just each one of those guys, each one of those names that you've mentioned, you know, they were ready to move up. They yeah. had challenged for the championship, or they had won the championship in Moto Three or One Two Five, and then jumped into Moto Two. I think. Um, okay, we saw with Baldassari. Uh, you know he's he's got to the point now where he, he's able to win races, but he had I think maybe two years before where he was it was only really towards the end of last year where he was you know ch- challenging for the top six, you know before that he was making do with twelfths and fourteenths and you know certain weekends where a point scoring ride would would represent something good, and I just think you know for someone that as talented as, as Fabio Quartararo that's that's quite disappointing I think if he had another good year yeah. in Moto three. And then stepped up. Then he would maybe be able to, you know, be looking at top sixes when he when he uh, in his first season after a year of winning or yeah. challenging for podiums. So I don't know. I think it's I think it's too early, personally. But I can I can see a point of view when when Cedar Pons comes a call and that's not always. Uh, you know, maybe if, if also if your options in Moto3 aren't that great, you know, maybe... Yeah, exactly. Well, the, 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 yeah. This, this is it. I mean, I, I completely agree. It'd be really great to see Quattararo in a good structure with the, with the right people around him, but... Um, uh, like like Monlau. Where he was. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm sure they'll welcome him, welcome him back with open arms, though, Neil, <laughs> won't they? <laughs> because uh, I can't see Emilio Alsamora being particularly vindictive about that sort no, of thing. No, no. Can't imagine him being difficult at all. No, no, no. No, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, but, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's always a difficult one, that one. Yeah, and it was, it was just another... Awful weekend for Quattro. We heard rumors from certain French journalists that it was maybe even going to be the end of his relationship with uh, Leopard. Uh, yeah. At certain points over the weekend, I think it was just a nightmare from from start to beginning. Or sorry, from start to finish. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there were rumors of all sorts of just almost um, uh, almost ridiculous technical problems. And then, of course, he had a problem with his bike um, uh, during one of the free practice sessions where it's where the engine blew and there was oil all over the place. And um, uh, it was just he was just generally a not very uh, not a very happy bunny at all. But so, uh, yeah, he did, most of all, what he needs is a little bit of confidence back. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that's just about it. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you, uh, above all, Neil Morrison for joining me on this uh, on this wee chat, especially after putting up with me um, uh, all weekend and sitting next to me and listening to my inane wee chat all weekend. Um, did you enjoy your Misano weekend? It was good. It was good. I mean, the fourth uh the fourth race weekend in five um you know you can certainly feel yourself becoming a little uh a little less sharp let's say yeah. uh than, than weekends that have gone before but um yeah i mean Mizano's it's nice had a few days in in italy uh after the race weekend which was very pleasant indeed and uh yeah i mean it's uh i think it's you know it's i don't think Mizano's the the best track um it certainly is doesn't 
you know, hasn't got anything on, on Mugello or, you know, one of those one of those great circuits we visit. But I think in terms of uh, a race weekend that is relatively affordable, easy to get to, and has, you know, the added benefit of a holiday resort nearby with great food and everything. I think it's a, it's a decent weekend away for sure. Yeah, exactly. I think especially if you come with your uh, uh, with your you know wife, partner, kids, or whatever, um, uh, you can leave them uh, at the beach all day and uh, head to the track, and then come back and meet in the evening for a uh, uh, you know for a pleasant uh, pleasant enough place. There's, I mean, it's a it's a proper tourist trap. Uh, there's basically a street which runs almost, I think, from Rimini all the way down to Catolica, uh, basically, which is perhaps Perhaps fifteen, something like fifteen kilometers, and it's just one long um, uh, repeating street of exactly the same shops selling tourist tat and restaurants. Uh, fortunately, the restaurants are all serving rather good food, um, uh, and the tourist uh, pay, uh, the, the the tourist shops are selling rather terrible tat. Um, uh, so yeah, definitely definitely worth it. And of course, it's great you can combine it with uh, a trip to Venice or somewhere like that. Um, uh, 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 pop into Tuscany for uh, for a spot of mm. rolling Tuscan hills, yeah, um, yeah, and a glass or two of Chianti. Yes, yes, and uh, and Rimini actually is um, you know first glance is is tacky like you know a kind of Italian Blackpool, um, but the old town it has no time with um, you know some beautiful old buildings and nice restaurants and things like that. That's yeah, a nice place to pass maybe one or two evenings. Um, yeah, and as you say, Venice is close by. Bologna is a lovely city as well. It's not too far away, um, so you can definitely make a nice trip of it. Yeah, exactly. And the Tuscan Hills are just uh, just behind San Marino. If, if you've never actually been to San Marino, um, again, speaking of tourist tats, San Marino is definitely that. But um, uh, it's uh, it's definitely interesting. It's beautiful. You can actually see it from the track in the night. They actually, in the evenings, you can sort of see this little sort of prince, prince or this castle up on a hill you can see off in the distance. So, um, yeah, all, all very entertaining. I had less of a good weekend. I was um, not not feeling not feeling very well i had an icky tummy as we say in england um and so that was uh, that made it difficult to work at times but uh, <laughs> it uh, uh it, still there are worse places to feel ill than uh, than uh, in italy absolutely indeed right well thanks again and uh speak to you soon Who's doing the old uh, introductions? Up, up to you. You can do it, or I can do it. I don't care. Um, well, let's see. Okay. Well, I mean, there's only two of us, so it's, it's, you know, it's. So, am I going to do it? Or are you going to do it? Uh, I don't mind. I mean, uh, it's only it doesn't really matter. No, exactly. Uh, there's only two of us. Uh, you, you go ahead, there, Dave. Sure. I, I think shall... it's your. I think it's your turn. You think it's my turn to say uh, hello and welcome to? Oh, oh, bloody hell! It's all very well saying it's my turn to say well, hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast, but it's not as easy it is mm. as, as as you think to say hello and welcome to the Paddock yeah. Pass. See? Oh, there we go. You see, it's supposed to be Take easy one. to say.